We are extremely fortunate um, that Tony Benn agreed to come and talk to us. We've had a little uh, mini-symposium this afternoon on the levellers and the first uh, English Revolution. Um, but this is the big event of the day, as you can see. Uh, I was once lecturing in London, and my lecture was interrupted every 30 seconds by explosions of laughter. It was very difficult to complete the hour. Afterwards, I asked, what was happening next door? Uh, the answer was, Tony Benn was giving a lecture. Uh, he is certainly uh, the best orator we've had the privilege of having in, in Parliament. And uh, as many of you will know, he, he was a minister between uh, 1964 and uh, uh, 1979, and a member of Parliament for an extremely long period, uh, 1960 to 2001. And uh, uh, I think it's true uh, that in 2001 he said... Um, he was leaving Parliament in order to have more time for politics. Is that apocryphal or is that true? <laughs> and so I think he must have a certain sympathy with the levellers of the 17th century whom we've been discussing today uh, because they wanted to get agreements of the people, a sort of proto-referendum which would bypass Parliament, which wasn't always effective enough. Uh, so I'm imagining, but Tony Benn will correct me, uh, uh, that... Uh, that's at least one reason for sympathy uh, with the levellers. Uh, I don't want to take up more time because it's so wonderful to have Tony Benn's time, uh, such a privilege for us. And so um, I'm going to ask him to talk about the long, hard road to democracy and social justice. And he's very kindly said that he'll be very happy to take part in discussion. And when we come to that... Uh, <clears throat> I shall repeat uh, questions so that everybody can hear uh, using this microphone. Uh, Tony, thank you very much for coming and speaking to us. Well, thank you very much for asking me. I came up to Oxford as a student 66 years ago this term, and it's very nice to be back. I have a granddaughter at New College. But I must warn you, I'm not an academic. You'll soon discover it, so I thought I'd better tell you in advance. Um, I think my, the most influential recollection I have of history was when George V died in 1937, 36. We all were given a coronation pencil, which has the dates on it of all the kings and queens of England. And I attribute such academic success as I've ever had the fact that I could look and say 1066, William the Third. <laughs> Trouble is, I was such a keen student, I sharpened the pencil and lost lots of the kings, and it hasn't made quite the difference that it should have done. But, uh, you see, I think one thing I have discovered as I got older, the neglect of the history of a kind that really interests most people, all the kings and queens and all that, and I did PPE here, but I don't think Marx was mentioned while I was here, except one lecturer said he was wrong. That's my only recollection <laughs> of Marx being referred to. And uh, the, the, the political question, which is a, uh, your seminar and my talk tonight, is really around the simple question, 
How much control do we have of our lives, of our future? And that is, for me, the central question of politics. And, of course, from the beginning of time, and I'm not sure how much has changed, rich and powerful people have always run the world. And if you take the crudest form, slavery. Slavery was where people owned other people and controlled them by flogging them or executing them if they caused any trouble. And that theme of how much control do we have is the reason why I'm interested in this period of history, the levelers, and indeed, with your permission, broaden it out to some or two other influences. First thing that interests me was the Peasants' Revolt, 1381. Mrs. Thatcher had not been told about that, or she wouldn't have tried it again. <laughs> but that arose over the Black Death, caused the death of an awful lot of... Uh, workers and therefore wages went up so they weren't having that so they introduced the statute of laborers under which the first wage control policy was 1381 and then the, pe the, the poll tax and so the peasants revolted came to London and uh, there was a man called the Reverend John Ball who was, uh, supported the, uh, the peasants and he delivered a famous sermon all over the place but perhaps most famously in Blackheath and he said things will not go well in England till all property shall be in common. I've got the text of his thing, you may know it. My good friends, matters cannot go on well in England until all things shall be in common, when there shall be neither vassals nor lords, when the lords shall be no more masters than ourselves. Then he went to ask the question, how well do they behave to us? For what reason do they hold us in bondage? Are we not all descended from the same parents, Adam and Eve? And what can they show? What reason can they give? why they should be more masters than ourselves. And then he finishes up and said, oh, I thought, here we are, yes, they have handsome seats and manners, while we must brave the wind and rain in our labours in the field, and it's by our labour that they have wherewith to support their pomp. Now that was a very, very interesting statement. It makes Karl Marx seem coming very, very late to the field of analysing a struggle between the rich and the poor. And then you come to the English Revolution, which I know is the focus of, uh, of this conference. And every year I go to Burford, I don't know whether any of you here do, but uh, for the last 30-odd years at Burford they commemorate the shooting of three leveller soldiers by Cromwell. And the leveller soldiers didn't want to fight in Ireland. So you see, history does take a bit of time to unfold. I don't think that... Uh, anyone would have believed at the time the question of the British occupation of Ireland would have continued to be so relevant even up to today, but they were shot in the churchyard, and my wife came with me and she put a, uh, some roses on the place where they were shot, and now there's a plaque. And it was a very, very interesting period of history. It was the first republic in the world. We were a republic long before the Americans, long before the uh, French, long before the Russians, long before the Americans. And the story, the historical story, is very well known. The monarch was overthrown, Charles I. He argued that uh, God wanted him to be king. I'll come to that in a moment, how that came about. And he was overthrown, and uh, Parliament uh, took over with an army, and then uh, Cromwell himself became a sort of Stalin, and he dissolved Parliament, and the whole thing ended in 1660 with the restoration of the monarchy. And he did introduce some very interesting laws during that period. One abolished the House of Lords. It was a very interesting bill. 
They thought, it said, the House of Lords should not sit here or purport to sit anywhere else. It was what you might call comprehensive legislation. <laughs> and I was so interested in this that I went to the House of Commons Library and I said, could I have the legislation of the Commonwealth period? And the librarian looked at me in a very superior way and said, Commonwealth period? Commonwealth, what do you mean? I said, oh, don't be silly. The history between 1649 and 1660. Oh, she said with a superior smile, you mean the interregnum. So the only time you're allowed to recognise the Commonwealth is an accidental gap between two kings. And it's very funny, you see, this is another example of the continuity of history, because when I was in China years ago, I said to them, how long will it take to introduce communism into China? And they said, 300 years. And I said, well, I've heard of long-term planning, but that is a lot longer than usual. And they said, ah, but what about England? They said, we understand in 1649 was the first attack on feudalism in England. I said, yes, yes. And they said, we are told there are some remnants of it still. When I heard <laughs> Prince Charles make a speech about his view of the monarchy, I thought perhaps how relevant that was. But, you see, the two documents come, or the key document, of course, that, uh, that is of interest, is the agreement of the people. If you haven't heard, it's very short. We, the free people of England, to whom God, you see, God comes into it all to begin with, to whom God hath given hearts, minds, and opportunity to effect the same, do with submission to his wisdom in his name and desiring equity thereof, maybe to his praise and praise and glory, agree to ascertain our government, to abolish all arbitrary power and set bounds and limits both to supreme and subordinate authority and declare and publish to the world we are agreed the supreme authority of England and the territories therewith shall be and reside henceforth in a representative of the people. Now that was a republican constitution. The interesting thing about that was that the French copied it. Uh, I presume even my French is good enough to say it wasn't the agreement of the people l'agrément du peuple and they set up a republic in Bordeaux and the red flag flew in Bordeaux long before the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution. And when I get letters, I do after Labour conferences from some lieutenant colonel in, uh, lives in Tunbridge Wells, and hears we sing the red flag, he says, go back to Russia. And I always write back and say, well, actually, it's our flag, because the red flag came out of the English Revolution in 1649. But it's not just that, you see, that's so interesting. It's what was said at the time, because although the monarchy was restored and so on and so on and so on, ideas were released in the English Revolution that are enormously relevant. There was a French scholar who reported what was being said uh, by the, uh, this is his words, by the lower classes at the beginning of the Civil War, for example in Chelmsford, and this is what he reported. The relation of master and servant has no ground in the New Testament, in Christ there is neither bond nor free. Ranks such as those of the peerage and gentry are ethnical and heathenish distinctions. There's no ground in nature or scripture why one man should have a thousand pounds a year and another not a pound. The common people have been kept under blindness and ignorance and have remained servants and slaves to the nobility and the gentry, but God hath now opened their eyes and discovered unto them their Christian liberty. Now, see, what's so interesting about that, as I say, it's the ideas released by all this. But my favourite quotation is not from the levellers, who were sort of Democrats at the time, but from the diggers. Now, the diggers called themselves the real levellers, and they believed that the earth was a common treasury. And what they did, they went and occupied land. And, of course, they were turned off by the army and so on, but Gerard Stanley, in 1649 
made this in his statement, The True Level of Standard Advanced, published on April 26. This is what he said, and it's absolutely fascinating. In the beginning of time, said uh, uh, Wynne Stanley, the great creator, reason, the first uh, secular interpretation, reason created the earth, uh, made the earth to be a common treasury to preserve beasts, birds, fishes and man, the Lord that was to govern the creation. For man had domination given to him over the beasts, birds and fishes, but not one word was spoken in the beginning that one branch of mankind should rule over another. Now wait for it. And the reason is this. Every single man, male and female, the first recognition of sexist language in 1649, every single uh, man, male and female, is a perfect creature of himself. And the same spirit that made the globe dwells in man to govern the globe. So the flesh of man being subject to reason, his maker, needs not run abroad after any teacher or ruler without him. He needs not that any man should teach him. For the same anointing that ruled the Son of Man teach him, teacheth him all things. Now you just work out what that meant. And we said we don't need bishops. And they weren't very pleased about that. Uh, we, we, we have it in ourselves, reason is in us, and it leads us to the same conclusions that the Christian teachers said came from God. And that, I think, was a very, very important statement, and it uh, echoes in my mind because it raises questions about authority and where it comes from, and so on and so on. And you see, I think that this period, the, the English Revolution, did release ideas that are still relevant because the Putney debates on democracy between the grandees who wanted everything to be top-down and the delegates who wanted it bottom-up. The agitators, you know what an agitator was originally, he was an adjutant in Cromwell's army and that's now been corrupted into agitator, so an adjutant is now a troublemaker. And uh, it, it also raises the question of the relationship between Christianity and social justice. My mother, I used to read the Bible every night, with her, and she said, the Bible is a story of the conflict between the kings who had power and the prophets who preached righteousness. And she taught me to support the prophets against the kings. It's got me into a lot of trouble in my life, but the older I am, the more relevant it seemed. Because, you see, the kings try to manipulate religion to retain their power. I mean, the latest example is when Bush said God told him to go into Iraq. I didn't know God had an office in the White House, but that is his view. And uh, the danger of that is acute, particularly now, because if you have a war and God is on both sides, it's difficult to reach an agreement. <laughs> and if Christians are told they've got to fight Muslims and, and so on and so on, there is no hope. So it's very relevant to take power from the kings and listen to the prophets. And uh, you see, this is where information is so important. In 1401, when I was a very young member of Parliament, they passed the Heresy Act. <laughs> And the Heresy Act made it a criminal offence punishable by being uh, burned at the stake for a lay person to read the Bible. Why? Because if the common people read the Bible, they would interpret what the prophets meant for themselves and they wouldn't be told it only the priest knew. And of course churches were so important that Henry VIII nationalised the Church of England. It's our oldest nationalised industry, as you know. And uh, he did that because he didn't want the priest to be telling us what the Pope wanted, but what he wanted. And of course it was on that basis that Charles I said God made him king. And, and if you are king, it's quite sensible to have God on your side. And so that, these are the uh, very important questions where I think the secular and the 
and the religious come together because whether we're all uh, descendants of Adam and Eve or all creatures of reason then we have a common interest in the future and uh, it always interests me why it was that um, uh, that people turned beyond religious teaching because you see in the old days you'd go to the bishop and say bishop it's a very unfair world and the bishop would say I know my child but if only the rich are kind and the poor are patient we should all be rewarded in heaven and somebody said wonderful news bishop could we possibly have it while we're still alive and when that was said then social action came out of what had previously been religious and the conclusion I've come to I hesitate to say it too but it is that you can forget kings, presidents, and dictators, and emperors, and so on. They come and go. The people to remember are the teachers and the movements. The teachers who explain the world and the movements who change the world. And that's the conclusion I've reached in my life, and I offer it to you. And you see, somebody like Tom Paine. Tom Paine said, uh, God did not make rich and poor. He made men and women, and he gave them the earth to be their inheritance. Now, that just means something. He also said, and particularly relevant now in the age of religious war, he said, my country is the world, my religion is to do good. And Tom Paine, in my judgment, one of the great teachers, because he said something that was relevant to our experience. And uh, uh, the movements, uh, I've mentioned some of them, the Leveller movement, the uh, Tolpuddle martyrs who established trade unionism. You know, it was a criminal offence to form a trade union, and these... Uh, Farm labourers in Dorset formed a union, took an oath, and that was an offence because you could only take an oath to the king. And so they were taken to Dorchester Magistrates Court and sentenced to Australia as convicts. I've got an American friend who's just been in Australia. I said, how'd you get on? He said, tone of the us is a really tough. I said, what do you mean? Well, he said, when I asked for a visa, they said, do you have any previous convictions? And I said, no, is it still required? And you see, <laughs> out of that... All, all these people, they, they, they came back from Australia. Uh, the king, actually, they, ha they came back because the king had sworn an oath to the Freemasons. So they had to let them off. But when they came back, they said, well, only 2% of the population, all rich men, have got the vote. Why can't we have the vote? So you've got the Chartists, and then you've got the suffragettes. And it's these movements that change things. And my interest, as I get older, is in the teachers to help me understand the world and the movements that help me to change it. And you say, it's very interesting, take slavery, for example. We always talked, we always told about our, our traditional values in Britain, as you know. We, if you look at them in detail, they're not quite as valuable as they make out. But I was sent an, um, a leading article from The Economist a while ago, from The Economist in 1848 on the slave trade. And The Economist said, you cannot abolish the slave trade. This was a couple of years before my grandfather was born can't abolish the slave trade because they're always ignorant blacks in Africa with nothing ever to do and they're needed on the plantations of America. So said the economists, you should regulate the slave trade. And I thought of an organisation called Offslave, like Ofsted, which would examine slave ships and uh, would uh, uh, bring out, you know, those where the sanitary arrangements weren't adequate. And then you see, at the end of the slave trade, one of the objectives was to teach the slaves Christianity. And do you know, when they abolished the slave trade, they compensated the slave owners, but not the slaves, who like bailing out the banks. The rich were compensated for having lost their slaves, but the people who were slaves got nothing. And so all this is very, very interesting, and I, I've mentioned Tolpuddle. Now, you see, this is where we come to the, the more recent times. I've always studied the history of what I've been doing. It's the only way I've found history interesting.
and I learned to fly in Birmingham. And I did, this was in the war, and I discovered that in Birmingham there was the first municipal election following the Municipal Corporations Act of 1837, and people had the right to vote. And what they did, they voted for municipal fire brigade, for municipal schools, for municipal elemental municipal health care, later for municipal museum. And what democracy did was to transfer power from the marketplace and take it to the polling station from the wallet to the ballot. And of course, out of that we got the welfare state. And it's very, very controversial indeed. Even today, the idea that the poor should have a right to the vote that challenged the authority of the wealthy is detested. Nobody in power is very, very keen on it. Hitler didn't like it. Indeed, Hitler in Mein Kampf, which I bought when I was 11, he said, democracy inevitably leads to Marxism. You work that out. He said, if people have the vote, they'll move to the left, which of course they would, because there are more poor people than there are rich people. And I think that in that sense, you have to see democracy. Communism disappeared in Russia because it had no democratic base. You know, the old Russian joke, I was in Moscow, I said to them, can you differentiate between communism and capitalism? They said, well, capitalism is the exploitation of man by man. And in communism, it's the exact opposite. And so... <laughs> You see, this is the thing that really interests me, the idea that people have the right, the moral right, and the capacity to govern themselves. And my experience, such as it is in life, is uh, if you don't understand that, don't understand anything. You see, I think Mrs. Thatcher, I'm not being controversial, I never have been, but I think Mrs. Thatcher and Reagan launched an attack upon democracy. I think she understood the Labour Party better than we do. She knew our strength lay in trade unionism, so she smashed the miners. She knew our strength lay in local government, so she strangled local government. She knew our strength lay in public services, so she privatised them. And that process went on until about a year ago when people realised, as we now know, that uh, the market doesn't solve everybody's problems and we're now heading for a bloody great slump. But my experience of progress, in, if I may offer it to you, and I'm not going to talk for very much longer, is that uh, you protested is no good. I gave up protesting ages ago. Because if you protest, you say, I've lost and I don't like it. Well, it's kind of obvious. I think you have to look in, from historical example, make demands. We want the vote. We want this. We want that. And when you make demands, the people at the top have to listen. But particularly, if they're elected, they have to listen. Because as a member of parliament, very interesting, everyone in my constituency employed me. I mean, it's the only job in... I know of, with one employee and 60,000 employers. Every bus driver, street sweeper, home help employed me. And I was free to say what I believed and always did, and they were free to get rid of me if they wanted to, and once they did. And you see, the lack of democratic accountability is what you find all over the place. I mean, whatever the merit of the European Union, nobody elects the European commissions. They don't have to listen to you, because you can't do anything about them. And... I uh, worked out five little democratic questions. If you meet a powerful person, ask them five questions. What power have you got? Where did you get it from? In whose interest do you exercise it? To whom are you accountable? And how can we get rid of you? And if you can't get rid of powerful people, they may be brilliant, but it isn't. They are not responsible to you, but to the different interests. And my experience of progress, if you come up with a dangerous idea, like votes for women, for example, to begin with, it's ignored. Then if you go on, you're mad. I've had a touch of that myself in life. Then after that, you're dangerous. 
Then there's a pause, and then you can't find anyone at the top who doesn't claim to have thought of it in the first place. That is how progress is made. And if you don't keep up the pressure, nothing happens at the top. And uh, you see, looking just very briefly at the end of the world we're in today, and relating it perhaps to some extent um, to what I've been talking about, um, in the world we live in now, the world is really now run again as it was at the beginning in a different way, by rich and powerful forces are not accountable. The banks are not accountable to anybody. The multinational corporations. Nobody elects the World Trade Organization. Nobody elects the International Monetary Fund. Nobody elects the uh, uh, World Bank. And so we've got to a point where democracy is in retreat globally, and yet if you don't have some accountability, you get into a difficult situation. And I have an old friend called Jack Gilligan, who was a former Democratic governor of Ohio, and he said to me when I was last in Cincinnati, he said, Tony, there'll never be democracy in America while big business buys both political parties and expects a payoff whichever one wins. And that's quite a shrewd comment, and it's not so far from what's happening here. And uh, I think we will have to move to a world government of some kind. I mean, in saying this, I'm aware how wildly absurd it is, but... If you, in the end, if you're going to have a peaceful world, you've got to have some sort of world government. And if you had a world government based on the size of populations in each constituency, China would have two billion votes instead of one, like Luxembourg. India would have two billion votes. We would have, what, 60 million. The Americans would have 300 million. And it would absolutely change the balance of power in the world. And it, the, even to suggest that now would be ludicrous. But is it so different from what was said when the Chartists asked for the poor to have the vote or for women to have the vote? It's exactly the same. So when I look ahead, I think that is the way it will have to be done. I've reached an age, and it's lovely, I'm 83, and I, I've had a bit of experience, but I don't want anything. You can relax, I'm not asking anyone to vote for me, and that's good for you and wonderful for me. But uh, I think you have to recognise that we are controlled in very simple ways. First of all, they keep you frightened. That's a wonderful way to control people. It used to be the Kaiser, then it was Hitler, then it was Stalin, now it's the Muslims. And in a year or two, I must warn you, there'll be an MI5 man in every Chinese takeaway in case they're propaganda from Beijing. Keep you frightened. Keep you divided, men and women, black and white, Muslim, Christian, Jew. Then they uh, demoralise you. I think demoralisation is very subtle, and I hardly dare say it in Oxford. Why come if I don't? The exam system is to demoralise the majority of people. I met a man the other day, I said, what's your job? Who said, Tony, I failed 11 plus, as if the government had said to him at the age of 11, you've failed. And uh, it's uh, all the sort of specially gifted children, I don't want to give offence to you, I'm sure you're all specially gifted, but I can't say that dividing children according to their ability at that age makes a lot of sense. And even in the Soviet Union, you know, when I was there as a minister, I discovered that Russians had schools for scarcely gifted children, and I raised it with Mr. Ilutin, the Minister of Health in the Kremlin, Minister of Education in the Kremlin. And he gave me a big wink, and he said, Comrade, they're actually for the children of specially gifted parents. And I thought, broadly speaking, that summed it all up very, very nicely. <laughs> so... Oh, and the other thing about demoralisation, and this came home to me recently, I went to the Labour conference to hear Blair's last speech, got up to go to the loo, collapsed, was taken to hospital, and given what somebody kindly called me, was a peacemaker, which I've got in my chest. I like, I like that description. And uh, 
Blair wrote and said he hoped it wasn't his speech that caused the trouble, and I was too polite to reply. But the point of the story... (laughs) When I left that hospital, I discovered that hospital, according to the Ministry of Health, was the worst hospital in Britain. Now, if you are a doctor, a sister, a porter, a nurse, and you're told by the Ministry of Health you work in the worst, what effect does that have on your morale? People do better when they're encouraged. I think the only function of old people is to encourage young people. You can hardly criticise them because our generation made a complete hash of the world. So you can't blame the young. They're just starting. And I think that every generation has to fight the same battles again and again and again. That's why these examples I gave from history are so wonderful for me. Because um, there are two flames burning in every human heart and always have been in every period of history. The flame of anger against injustice and the flame of hope you can build a better world. And the quotations that I give uh, relate to that. They have helped me to understand the anger and also they were right to have a hope because we have made progress. And uh, leadership is talked about so often, you know, in the way they do on the party leaders as I took a tough decision, difficult to do, had to do it. So, but there's a Chinese philosopher called Dao Su. And he was asked about leadership, and this is what he said. He said, as to the best leaders, the people do not notice their existence. The next best they honor and praise, the next best they hate, then those they fear. But, said Lao Tzu, when the best leader's work is done, the people say, we did it ourselves. And I believe that. That's the conclusion I've come to. That it's about democracy, it's about doing it ourselves, and if you do do it yourself, you've got all these historical examples of people who tried. I mean, look at Mandela spoke in Trafalgar Square when he was sentenced to life imprisonment and was denounced in the tabloid. Next time I met him, he had a Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, so it's that, Bobby Sands, I'll give you another example, died of hunger strike. What did he say? Uh, When he, uh, just before he died, he said, our revenge, said Bobby Sands, will be the laughter of our children. All I want, he said, is my children to be able to laugh. I find that so moving, I can hardly repeat it without bursting into tears. But these are the people who've given us hope. And the great moral leaders of my lifetime have been Gandhi, Mandela, Desmond Tutu, and Paul Robeson. Not one of them Europeans. And they're the ones who gave us an opportunity to understand the world we could build by non-violence and cooperation. And I'm sure they would have been, and probably have been, as inspired by the story of the English Revolution and all those in England, Scotland and Wales who fought for justice, just as much inspired by them as I have been. Thank you very much indeed for listening.